RadioInfluence.com. Welcome to another edition of the Real Animals Podcast, always presented by my good friends at Contender Boats. Super excited to get a little bit of time. I think this is the second time we were able to get this guy on the phone. Super busy, uh, super active, inshore charters, tarpon charters, gator hunts, airboat rides. He does a little bit of everything over four decades of guiding experience here on Florida's West Coast, uh, of, of course, talking about my good friend, Captain Dave Marquette. Dave, how are you today, buddy? Good morning, Mike Anderson. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm blessed to be alive and glad to be on your trip. Well, I appreciate you, my friend. I I, uh, I I have a whole bunch of stuff in my brain that I want to run by you, but I want to start with the Tampa Bay fishery in general. As a lot of people know, you know, May 2021, redfish, snook, and trout are scheduled to possibly reopen, at least a revisit to reopening. And I'm, I've, I've talked to several guides. I've gotten some ideas. I've gotten some thoughts. But I don't know anybody that knows the Tampa Bay Estuary any better who has fished it any longer uh, than you have, Dave. And, and so I want to get your thoughts on snook, redfish, and trout uh, as we move forward into 2021? Well, Mike, I, I, you know, this is a dilemma, maybe maybe one of the biggest fishery dilemmas that the FWC has ever faced. Uh, certainly has impacted tens of thousands of recreational anglers. Uh, and there, I've, been, I've been asked the question you just asked me, uh, by quite a few people. And there really are a number of different ways to look at this whole situation. Uh, there, there are good sides and bad sides of the closure. The, you know, the closure was necessary because of the, the absolutely devastating red tide that became a murder tide, you know, for the first time really in, in my experience professionally guiding more than 50 years and, and fishing these areas for more than 60. What we have done in Tampa Bay has, is that we have educated porpoises and cormorants to follow recreational fishing boats around and eat, eat the fish that we're releasing because of state regulation. There are very few places that you can go in Tampa Bay and not have a porpoise or two or five show up and lay right on the bottom around the boat, wait on you to catch something and turn it loose. The same is true with the crusted cormorant. Cormorants are nuisances all over the world, everywhere they exist, and yet they're, they're not treated as pests uh, because they're, they're a, a waterfowl. So that's a, a management factor that is going to have to be added into the new regulations. <laughs> I think that I am seeing clear evidence that things are improving. And my uh, my thoughts are based on the fact that we're beginning to see juvenile redfish and trout show up in, in pretty good numbers throughout their range in from Pasco Hernando south all the way uh, down the 
West Coast where the red tide impacted. The numbers of small male snook have rebounded quicker than trout or redfish have. And that's a surprise to me. So when the FWC meets in mid-May, um, I have some hopes. I hope that the FWC will standardize the slot limit between snook and redfish. Same slot limit for both of those highly sought after species. And then I hope that the FWC will look at reducing the maximum, the top of the slot. The reason I say that is for both redfish and snook, once those fish get above 28 inches, science tells us the majority of those are breeding size females. And Florida has no plan to greatly expand the hatchery system. They've never been successful in a hatchery system that produces mega numbers of snook. So if they're not going to have man-made fish, i.e. fish coming out of a hatchery, then what we need to be particularly careful about is protecting the natural hatchery, which is the breeding stock female. So let me ask you a question, because I heard a, a very interesting take on this from a gentleman that you and I both know very well. He is Captain Rhett Morris down there yep. in Charlotte Harbor. Uh, I was trying to get Rhett to do a podcast, and, and we're going to do one, but uh, he was in Texas hunting with his family, so I haven't been able to get that in the schedule yet. But he had an interesting take on it. We probably talked for an hour or so, um, and I love his passion. Uh, it, it's very, very similar to to yours and mine as far as the conservation side of it. Um, you know, not a guy, I know neither one of us are, not a guy who's against taking fish out of a fishery, but both of us wanting that fishery managed correctly so it's sustainable for the future. So Red's take was, <clears throat> what if, what if under the certain circumstances where, to my knowledge and to his knowledge, uh, and maybe yours is different, we've never had this opportunity before because snook, redfish, and trout have never all been completely closed at the same time in the state of Florida that we're aware of, right? Correct. So that may give us an opportunity to, to try to do something a little off-based. And, and and it may sound a little crazy at first until you kind of hear it through, but his his thought was, what if we made snook one per person, maybe two per boat, um, but we made that slot like 35 inches and above? What if we took redfish and made the slot 29 to 32 or 28 to 30 and didn't and, and, and condense that slot for the redfish? And, and his thought process on it is, if, if you think about the amount of snook that we catch now on a regular basis, you know, you're, you, I mean, you're as good as there is on Tampa Bay, Dave. I know I have, you know, 40, 50 snook days. And they're all between 22 and 27 inches long. All of them. Every now and then. Well, all of those all, are male. All, every, I, well, every one of those fish is a male. I understand that. But my thought process is this, and, and it, 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 I got intrigued by this because Rhett brought it up. Imagine if all those fish you were catching 
If you had a 50 fish day and they were all 30 inches long or 32 inches long, that would also leave all those fish on that younger side of the, of the breeding cycle that would also leave all those fish in there to spawn instead of having everything going right up to that 28-inch mark that every time somebody catch one, that catches one that's 28 and a half inches, they kill it. If he didn't do that until it got to 35 or 36 inches, and with redfish the same way, imagine if the bay was crawling with schools of 26, 27-inch redfish, that you weren't taking those fish out of the out of the estuary if we were leaving those fish in there. And again, some of his thought process is he's been talking to guys that are coming back to fishing because the fishing is improving. Guys that were real grumpy over the last couple of years because they, they just didn't want to go fishing anymore because they weren't catching any fish. Well, now they're catching fish again. So try to make the fishing experience better in general. Think about if you take two redfish out, if, if each person gets a redfish, but they only take a, if they take a 21 inch redfish. Well, if you took, if each person got one fish that was 28 or 29 inches or 30 inches, there's enough, there's, you got enough meat on two fish to, you know, to feed a whole bunch more people than you do on 21 inch fish. Right. But we'd have more, no we'd have more fish to catch which would make the fishing experience better. You would still have fish to take home. And on the snook side, obviously it would take a while till we got to that 35, you know, several years probably, you know, before that were to roll over. But imagine how great the fishing would be if you had all those fish on the flats, you know, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32 inches long. I just wonder if, and, and his point was the monetary bonus to the fishing experience improving, the monetary bonus would be more people fishing, more people spending time in the water. That monetary bonus would turn into millions of extra dollars for our fishery, for conservation, for you know more charters booked, more gas bought, more boats sold, more rods sold, more reels sold, more shrimp sold. You know what I mean? More cast nets, more everything, because the fishing experience would be that much better. And yet we would still be leaving those large breeders in there in some cases. And like the snook case, you'd have, I would think, you know, I know that your monster snook breed put a ton of, you know, eggs into the, into the nursery, into the estuary. But if you had all those 30 inch fish breeding that whole time, I mean, that I just, it has a lot of advantages to it. I don't. And again, I brought it up to you because I thought it was so intriguing. I was, I was just kind of blown away by it, and I wanted to bring it up to you because I know that a lot of this stuff you've thought about over the years, and and just what you would think about something. And 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 this again, this might be an opportunity for us to do something like that because of the strange situation we're in, where snook, redfish, and trout are closed all at the same time. Now we could reopen things, change it all on a trial basis, and just see how it goes. And let everybody know, this is what we're going to try to do, and this is the reason that we're attempting to do it. And if it didn't work, you know, two years down the road, then you could maybe change it up a little bit. You know, maybe you would eventually go back to what we're having right now. But again, I think the opportunity to make the fishing experience that much better for everyone that fishes. I imagine there'll be people that say, well, you're just saying that because you're a charter captain, you want to catch more fish. We're catching fish anyway. So... 
That's not my goal here. My goal here is to make the fishing experience great across the board. Plus, I believe it will add to the estuary's health if you have all those breed stock snook alive still. You know, yes, you, you know, once the fishery gets in that kind of shape that we have these fish that are 35 inches or bigger, you're going to lose some of those monsters. But you have all these younger breeders that are doing all that breeding. Well, Mike, if, if I might comment. Uh, yeah, I want you to. Please. I, 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 I like that approach. Uh, I, 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 my philosophy is that whatever we do to reopen or partially reopen the, the human fate of these, these species, we absolutely have to protect the broodstock in the process. And so that, you know, there's, there's another component to this that I, that you have not mentioned that I am, as I grow older in years and longer in the tooth, as it is said, that I have come to realize it is absolutely critical. And that is the water quality that is entering our estuaries. No doubt. And, and so your component about geometrically protecting the broodstock and allowing some limited harvest of those those breeding females that quite frankly are above and beyond their you know that the, the term that fishery science use is fecund f e c o n d which means how how many babies does an individual produce that they there is a there is a kind of a a prime curve in there, and the fish that you're talking about harvesting are on the north side of that curve. Right. So that I think that could, I think your point could be effectively argued from a biological standpoint. And quite frankly, the only way we're going to improve our fishing, because with the exception of a few things that Tampa Bay Watch is doing, we are not producing significant amounts of quality habitat. Uh, our, our, our volume of quality habitat is pretty much a flat line. So I think it's got a lot of merit, right? Uh, again, you're going to have to, the, the, the challenge in all of this is that FWC is extremely slow to change their management philosophies. Yeah, no doubt. They, they're comfortable because law enforcement is is used to enforcing the old rules, they're comfortable because you know it's just how they've done it for years in the past. But I believe that what you just laid out it is a plan that should that should have thoughtful people give it careful consideration. And is there something? And I know you work with Tampa Bay Watch a lot. On, on the on the on the subject of water quality, is there something that that just drives Dave's brain day in and day out that we could be doing a better job oh, of? <laughs> I thought there might be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, of course. I think you just threw me a piece of cut bait. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, you know, all we hear about, all we hear about is the water quality issue in Lake Okeechobee and and what they dump out into the St. Lucie waterway and into the Calusa Hatchie River. Uh, 
what we do not hear about is where the the root the root problem begins and and what we might do to improve the water quality that gets to Lake Okeechobee. So this is something that I've been passionate about for a very long time. Uh, in 1959, the United States Army Corps of Engineers uh, was charged to channelize a very serpentine Kissimmee River to dig a straight ditch that came out of the town of Kissimmee and St. Cloud and went all the way to Lake Okeechobee. And that was because the, the, the headwaters of our Everglades, which is Lake Tohopa and the Green Swamp, had just been purchased in a significant manner by the Walt Disney Corporation for Disney World. And the people at Disney World understood that there was going to be enormous growth around their amusement park, both of additional amusements and of service people that were going to accumulate nearby to make that whole tourist center, epicenter is probably the better word, function. And so the Army Corps of Engineers came in and dug a straight-as-an-arrow ditch from the town of Kissimmee all the way to Lake Okeechobee. And in the process, they destroyed thousands of miles of Serpentine River. And what Serpentine River is, is a series of switchbacks in the normal flow of the water that when during flood periods, the water is going to, the water follows the, the deepest channels and it starts switching back and forth and it slows down. When it slows down, it spills over the banks and it goes into the grasslands that are known as Central, South Central Florida's Great Prairie Reef. So when the water spills out to the grassland, it comes into contact immediately with what is called herbaceous growth. And herbaceous growth is grass that has grown this year and is green and not brown. And the green in the grass is because there's a high content of sap in that grass. And when the water, floodwaters hit that sappy grass, it grabs particles of nitrogen and phosphorus and hangs on to it. So during periods of high water or flood, our wet season, there are millions of pounds of phosphorus and nitrogen that are attached to the green grass that are in these floodplains. So come November, when it quits raining, all of that dries out. It's still attached to the blades of grass, and it's being held there. So come February and March, when we first start getting our, our, our rain starts, lightning strikes a pine tree out on that prairie and starts fire, and uh, that brown grass that's probably been killed by frost goes up in smoke, and oh, by the way, so does the nitrogen and the phosphorus. And in the natural cycle of things, you are down to essentially bare sand, but the, the root system is intact, and as soon as it starts raining, the grass starts to grow again, and it's full of sap, and the cycle repeats itself. So if they answer the question, if we can get the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to agree that their straight ditch is not the answer, 
it, it is killing Lake Okeechobee. If they can just plug some of the true emergency spillways and let the water overflow the banks, then the water that reaches Lake Okeechobee will be thousands of times less toxic than the water that is going into Okeechobee right now. So Okeechobee can lose their continuously growing layer of muck, and it can get back to the lake grasses that can further filter the phosphorus in the night. That's a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let that grass do what it was meant to do to filter that water. Exactly. You know. Yeah, God, God kind of is a pretty good engineer. Yeah, he's pretty so, good. There are, there are a number of scientists that believe, and I am not a scientist, I am, every observation of mine is entirely anecdotal, meaning that there, there's no degree, no university degree behind anything I say. Uh, my opinion of why the, the red tide of four years ago was so deadly is that Lake Okeechobee was absolutely full of blue-green algae. Blue-green algae is a freshwater uh, biological entity that dies when it comes into contact with salt water. So, and blue-green algae is, is, is encounters explosive growth when it runs into a nutrient-rich environment. So, nutrient-rich means nitrogen and phosphorus. So here we have this enormous explosion of blue-green algae at Lake Okeechobee, Lake Kissimmee, Lake Hatchnahal, all of the lakes that comprise the Kissimmee chain of lakes. So we get a, a wet hurricane or two, and all of a sudden the Army Corps of Engineers opens the floodgates, and it's just like flushing the toilet at home. Exactly the same thing. All of that water is velocitized, and it is accelerated, and it is shot down the Kissimmee Dip. So the only alternatives that the water managers have is to open the locks at the Caloosahatchee River and at the St. Lucie Waterway and allow an explosion of fresh water to go into our escort. So even though you hear over and over and over again that red tide is a naturally occurring organism in our water, the explosive growth that creates killing red tide is not constantly there. Right. So there are a lot of very bright minds that believe that the introduction of dead blue-green algae organisms creates a feeding frenzy of the naturally occurring organism that is red tide. And so... When the red tide organisms feed on the blue on the dead blue green algae, that that consumes all of the dissolved oxygen in the water, and you have a massive die off. And so, the theory that that would flow from that assumption is that if you can cut down the amount of dead blue-green algae organisms that flow into the St. Lucie Waterway and into the Caloosahatchee River, then you can reduce the severity of a naturally occurring red tide. It makes sense. 
I think it's common sense. I think it kind of makes sense. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And so, if in other words, all you're hearing right now is about the Everglades restoration in the southern Everglades from Lake Okeechobee South. And, I mean, there's if, if you, I don't know whether you pay any attention, uh, the Seminole Indian Tribe of Florida, Betty Osceola has a Facebook group. And she posts uh, post on that nearly every day. And that is a very smart one. And so right now, there is an enormous amount of flood water from the recent tropical storms and a very active hurricane season that is being held back because Highway 41, which is called the Tamiami Trail, is the largest dike. I mean, it's the largest dam the Army Corps engineers ever built. The dam is over 140 miles long, and there are exceptionally few spillways through it. And so Betty Osceola's idea is, hey, you know, go down Tamiami Trail and put some six-foot culverts in there and just let the water flow, which would help save Florida Bay and the southern Everett. And so that's a fairly simple solution. Um, again, what, we get wrapped up, America gets wrapped up, and and I, I hate saying this, but the radical left scientific community gets wrapped up in, in trying to pre-prove a, an act or, or a solution. And I think that's a fairly smart approach, except when the world is flooding. When the world is flooding, it's time to get rid of some water. And in, in the process of getting rid of some water, you can have some m- closely monitored approaches that are, that are scientifically tested from, from conception all the way through to implementation. Well, and the culvert, so the culvert idea, to me, as long as it's brushed over by multiple people as to being a fairly good idea. If it turned out it wasn't, closing those off wouldn't, wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, you plug the culvert. You plug the culvert and you're in, done. In other words, in other words what they like, what, what the Army Corps of Engineers likes is grand structures. Well, that's great, except grand structures you, you, you take a long... You understand what I'm saying yeah. about grand structures. Yeah. In other words, something that costs $25 million dollars yeah. And yeah. it's going to have some general's name on it. Right. Okay? Yeah. A culvert, I mean, culverts are used by the millions all over the world to facilitate water going from point A to point B. Absolutely. Makes it's too, not rocket science. Might make too much sense, Dave. <laughs> might make well, too much sense. We yeah. could. We could, we could talk about some of this stuff for a long time, but I want to dive into another topic here uh, for the last 10 or 15 minutes that we're talking here. I want to talk about gator hunting a little bit because uh, okay. I haven't done that on the podcast and I know it's uh, in your wheelhouse. When did the whole gator hunting thing start for Captain Dave Marquette? Is this something you did as a kid here? Well, okay. So hunting alligators is a part of, of Florida cracker culture. And Florida, the term Florida cracker is in no way a racist term. 
The term originated from the original cow hunters that were paid to come to Florida to herd the wild cattle that existed throughout the state that were a derivative of the initial Spanish explorers bringing livestock with them. They brought swine and they brought bovine with them. And some of the swine and some of the bovine escaped. And that became wild hogs and wild cow. And so when the original, when the United States government employed citizens to hunt wild cows, it was to, to feed the troops of the War of 1812. And so firearms at that time were extremely primitive. And there was no such thing as a bullet. It was all, every firearm was muzzle-loaded. And by the nature of it, that means that every pistol and every rifle, Kentucky rifle or whatever you want to call it, carried one bullet. And the, the, the cow hunters had to worry about keeping their powder dry. So they could not always even have their 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 weapons loaded because in a wet environment like many of the hammocks and many of the swamps in Florida are, the powder would absorb moisture and it would not explode when the flintlock was struck. So we're all used to seeing the old cowboy western movies where they were riding around on horses and all the cowboys had a six-shooter up in the air going bang, 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 and that was driving the cattle. Well, there was no such thing in reality in the early days of, of Florida. So the, the cowboys, such it wasn't a cowboy, cow hunters, had to have something that was effective at driving a cow out of a palmetto thicket or out of a swamp where they could be gathered in groups and driven to uh, a loading facility. Here comes the full whip. And the truth of the matter is the term Florida cracker is a direct, is a derivative, a direct derivative of the cow hunters using a bullwhip to make the crack that sounds like a gunshot that will stir a, a wild cow into moving in a certain direction. That's interesting. And so that's where the term Florida cracker came from. That's what it means. So anyhow, uh, what and I just got done with my little lecture and <laughs> I forgot where I was going with we're it. Going but ga- we're, anyhow, talking, we're talking about gator hunting. Gator hunting. Okay, <laughs> so at the period of time when they were here, they could not go to the store and get groceries. They had to eat what they encountered. And so they weren't going to eat a cow because that's what they got paid for. So Barter Cracker started gator hunting. And from that time, eating alligators for their for their meat and then for the excellent leather that their hides represent became a mainstay of native Florida outdoorsmen that were that were that were sustenance living. Okay, so we go beyond that and then all of a sudden as as wealth begins to accumulate then the, the high-quality leather for women's finery came in high demand. And 
Native Floridians were paid handsomely for alligator hides. And so what it became so popular that the numbers plummeted. So alligators began to be managed under the Endangered Species Act, the Worldwide Endangered Species Act. And for a while, the season was completely closed. And then, you know, alligators laying 50 eggs at a time, it didn't take long for the alligator population to come back. Right. And, and so at that time, the, there was a public season open to harvest alligators, and the public was allowed to sell the alligator and alligator products to the commercial marketplace. So as time went on, alligator populations began to, began to really grow, and it ran head-on into Florida's residential growth explosion. So now developers are developing all of the wetlands for golf courses, for housing developments, and for all that. And the alligator's native habitat has a broadside high-speed collision with people moving down here from the Midwest and the Northeast that have believed all of the horror movies where the alligator is going to eat the house and them inside of it. (laughs) Yep. Makes sense to me. Every time, I'm I'm just saying (laughs) So all of a sudden, the Fish and Wildlife Commission is inundated with nuisance wildlife calls. Come get the alligator. He's going to eat Fido, or actually he does. <laughs> Alligators love dogs, and dogs love the edge of waterways, and so the dog is always going to lose that fight. Always. So anyhow, anyhow, uh, now it becomes a sporting activity. And just like you go to Georgia to deer hunt, you go to Georgia to deer hunt for one reason. And the one reason is that Georgia manages their deer herd differently than Florida does. So the average deer is heavier and has bigger horns. If Florida managed their deer herd the way that Georgia and Alabama and all other trophy deer states did, you wouldn't leave Florida. But they don't. And so you, you, you travel to deer hunt. And so... What we have is a great population of alligators, and now people from around the country are traveling to Florida to hunt alligators. And so, you know, I I guide for that opportunity. I've guided alligator hunts now for 20 years. No kidding. What's your biggest biggest alligator, Dave? Well, again, now I'm a guide, so you have to understand that my goal is not to get the alligator myself. Right. There are a lot of guides, alligator guides in Florida that do everything, and then they just let the people on the boat hold on to the line once the alligator is harping or once the alligator is hooked, okay? Right. My goal is different. My goal is to teach somebody how to catch their own. And so that's a, that's a difference in how I guide versus how some other people guide. Sure. But the biggest, the, it's actually a tie. Well, it's not quite a tie, but it's... It, uh, in all, in all senses, it's a tie. Um, Teresa Giampia, a lady, um, took a 12 foot eight and three quarter inch alligator, uh, on my airboat. And it was Teresa, myself and her dog, her adopted dog on the airboat. And the alligator weighed just north of 800 pounds. Wow. And, uh, it, it, it was everything that we could do. It was one of the most dramatic events I've ever experienced as an outdoor guide. It took us four hours 
to get the alligator on the deck of the airboat after we had it banked stick to fill. So it was only the two of us. And so, I mean, that, that's a massive alligator. And then uh, one of my very loyal charter customers, uh, Rudy Blair, and and his sidekick, uh, Rich, from Philadelphia, um, they got a 12-foot-9, but they read the tape. And when I read the tape, it was 12 feet 8 3 quarters. <laughs> so it's the, 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 those two were identical. Uh, we've taken quite a few gators over twelve. Uh, I'll tell everybody that a seven foot al- uh, an eight foot alligator is twice as big as a seven foot. A nine foot is twice as big as an eight foot. A ten foot is twice as big as a nine foot, and so on. <laughs> I believe it. So the dip- the difference in a foot on a mature alligator is an enormous amount of mass. I know. So, I know for myself. I've only done it one time. I, I ventured down to Okeechobee and, and got in a boat with Mike Mahoney and and went on. A, yeah, I went on a gator hunt, and uh, we we had two tags to fill, and and we did fill them. Um, and it was it was quite the experience. Uh, it didn't it didn't take me long, and I don't know how you hunt for them, but I know Mr. Mahoney. At least that night we were we were hunting with big tarpon tackle, um, weighted treble hooks and, you know, making casts. And it didn't take me long to figure out that if you were the guy on the end of the rod, you could stay away from the head of that alligator. And I knew one thing about being on that boat that night for sure. I was the most accurate and best caster on the boat. Therefore, well, I would not in any way, shape or form be the guy that close to the alligator again, because I ended up close to the first one. And I'm like, no, I'll fix that. The next one, I'll be putting a hook in, so I do not have to get that close to that alligator ever again. And we didn't, we didn't spend, a, you know, it wasn't like a, a an all night trophy hunt. We were trying to fill a couple of tags, and I think we had two seven and a half eight footers. But those two lizards were very mad when we got them next to the boat, and um, it, it was quite the experience. I highly recommend it to people that just love outdoor activities. Um, I, I don't know that I'll ever do it again. Um, I, I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it again because I had a good time, but, but I don't know that I would ever, you know, it's not like deer hunting to me. Um, with that being said, I highly recommend people go do it because it is it is unbelievable. And I tell people, too, that if you think to yourself, because I, I remember driving to Okeechobee and I remember thinking, I don't really see a lot of alligators where I live. I don't know why we're hunting them. I was just like, mm, I don't know. Gator bites are good, blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. I had a buddy with me from Wisconsin, my buddy Bruce, that wanted to go do it. And I was like, all right, well, I've never done it. We'll go do it. When when Mike Mahoney lit up his spotlight in the Rim Canal of Okeechobee, and it looked like someone lit the Christmas tree in Times Square with the amount of eyeballs that I saw, <laughs> I immediately relaxed and I thought, well, we only have two tags. We're not going to hurt the population with our two tags. I promise you that. And we saw every alligator from, you know, two and a half footers, three footers up to, you know, 10, 11, 12 footers. So it's, uh, it's definitely a neat experience and one that, uh, I think people should, uh, should do for sure. The bad news is, Dave, we could talk, I could talk to you and do podcasts. I think I said this last time we did a podcast for hours on end. Uh, you're one of my favorite people, one of the people in the fishing business here in Florida that I truly respect. Uh, I believe that you do things the right way. I believe you do things for the right reasons. Uh, I know 
tarpon fishing side by side with you down in Boca Grande for years. Uh, I know that your tarpon expertise is second to none. Um, your inshore fishing expertise is second to none. You also do airboat rides as well. Captain Dave Marquette. It's C-A-P-T Dave Marquette with two T's dot com is the website uh, with, again, five decades of guiding here in Florida, Dave. Nobody better than you. I know that you're a busy guy. I appreciate you spending some time with us. And uh, unfortunately for you, you're going to have to do it again because I got more stuff I want to talk to you about. Anytime, Mike. Another incredible episode of the Real Animals podcast. I always enjoy Captain Dave Marquette uh, being around. You know, when I first got in the business, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, file into a group of people that uh, guides that included Captain Dave Marquette, his incredible son, Dalen Marquette, another good friend of mine, uh, and Dave, with over five decades of guiding experience on Tampa Bay, was very instrumental in teaching me the rights and the wrongs and the how-tos and the what-not-to-dos uh, on, on the bay, guiding and, and fishing and, and things to do with my career. So uh, he, he's like a father figure to me. I absolutely love the guy, and he is, as you can tell, just choked full of incredible knowledge. His passion for conservation and just doing things the right way is really really impressive again i hope you guys enjoyed that i know i enjoyed it very much the real animals podcast is always presented by contender boats and it's available on apple Podcasts, stitcher tune in google play ritampabay.com and spotify and most importantly remember to subscribe rate and review with new episodes trying to be delivered to you each and every tuesday make sure you check them out We appreciate you guys. Have a great day. We're out. I'm Jerry P. Tuck, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>